Thanks for listening to the Crosspoint Podcast. This is the Young Adults Ministry of the Franklin Road Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Here we desire to see this generation of young adults reached and revived with the gospel of Christ. We believe our generation has the opportunity to change the world as we know it. We'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Franklin Road Baptist Church. Our prayer is that our podcast will help you grow in your relationship with God. Enjoy the Crosspoint Podcast. 58, he says, Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain. So what is he saying when he says, therefore? He's already, we've already talked about the gospel. We've already talked about the resurrection. We've already talked about how eternity makes you unmovable. And today he really gets practical and he says, Christian living makes you unmovable. Let's pray and we'll ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the day that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you would ask, uh, I ask that you would uh, help me as I speak. Lord, you know that um, it's been a different week. Lord, it's been a different couple of days. It's really been a different year if we go back to where we were this time last year. And so, God, I ask you would help us to hone in on your word that has not changed and that continues to speak to our hearts and our lives even today. May we take it, may we apply it, and may we live it out this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed that some of the most successful people, whatever you gauge success by, um, you can look at it either financially, you can look at it maybe in the athletic field, you can look at it in business, you can look at it in maybe education, you can look at it in hundreds of different arenas. But if you look at the people who are successful in whatever arena, most of the time it simply boils down to they begin to practice and live out and make habits of what they believe. Um, habits right now is, is a trendy topic, okay? You've got a lot of leadership people, you've got business people, you've got uh, sports people who want you to develop healthy habits in whatever arena they are. Um, you, tell, you look at some of the most successful uh, sports and athletes of, of their career, they would consistently go in and make a habit of putting up thousands and thousands of shots if they were a basketball player. You look at some of the reports that came out when Michael Phelps was at the top of, of the, his swimming career and was winning all the Olympic gold medals. You look at the habits that he built, eating sometimes close to 5,000 calories to replenish himself from all the mile, miles and miles that he swam. Those are habits that he put in to become successful and to really rise to the top of, of his career. You can see that in really anything right now. You can see that the people who are good at what they do have built good, healthy habits that they do day in and day out. I remember I was reading an article one time about Nick Saban, who's the coach of the uh, Alabama um, Crimson Tide. He's won all the national championships, blah, blah, whatever. I don't really like him, but the, the, it, I, I can at least give him credit for what he's done, okay? And so uh, anyways, I was reading something, and uh, they said, what's one of the best habits that you've built um, as a coach that, that has really excelled you? And he said, I eat the same thing every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And someone asked him, like, why do, why do you credit your success on the field with something as simple as eating the same thing? He says, because that means that breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'm free to not have to think about what I'm going to eat. I'm free to think about what I am going to do on the football field. He has, which, that would be the worst life ever. Like, <laughs> eggs again. Oh, no. <laughs> But there, basically, there is this habit that has been built 
with him to where he has raised the priority of something else. He says, food is not something that I want to think about or even give time toward my thought with, so I am going to focus on what I am good at, which means this. For some of us, when we look at the habits, or if you want to get technical, the laws of Christianity, most of us shy away from them because we assume that that's God forcing us to do something that we don't want to do. We say, well, that's God's telling me what to do. That's legalistic. Okay? I don't, I don't, I, rules without relationship breeds rebellion, and so I'm going to run from that. Okay? And let me just say, there are people that force anti biblical rules on people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about straight from the mouth of God. What are the things that God has called us to do? And for many of us, the reason why there has not been Christian growth is simply because there has not been. Christian living or Christian obedience, if you want to come right down to it. What you are good at and what you are growing in are the things that you have built habits for. If you want to lose weight, you're going to build healthy habits toward maybe eating right, toward exercising. If you want to become successful with your money, you're going to build healthy habits with how you handle your money. You're going to set budgets. You're going to set parameters. You're going to save. You're going to put things in certain accounts so that you never even have to see that money come through. You're going to build healthy habits with the goal of financial growth. And so the same applies with Christianity. I'm not trying to make Christian robots, but here's what I want you to see is that if you will be unmovable and stable in a society that is constantly changing, it may require you to sacrifice some of your personal preferences for God's commands and His obedience. And so what does that mean? What are the, what are the areas that where you can become unmovable? Paul mentions three things in this. The first one is dying daily makes you unmovable. Dying daily makes you unmovable. If something this week bothered you, if something in your day bothered you maybe throughout this week or maybe over the past couple of months, you say, this is what has bothered me. Do you know who that hasn't bothered? Someone who's dead. Someone who has passed away has no more cares or no more concerns because there's nothing else they can do to change it. Which means this. In your Christian life, there's multiple times throughout the Gospels Jesus himself says to be dead to self. Paul mentions it multiple times in the epistles. When we talk about being dead, here's what we're saying. When we are dead to ourself and dead to the things of this world, then that means that they cannot shake us. They cannot bother us. In fact, in some ways, there's really not much that you can do to change them. There's nothing that you and I can technically do to maybe go out and change America and change the political landscape of America. We can do what we can, and we should do what we can. But there's nothing that we can do to actually take the bull by the horns and say, this is what I am going to do, and this is what I am going to change. The only hope that we have as Christians in America and in this world is by stepping back and saying, the things of this world, the things of this life, are dead to me and I am dead to them, which means this, my financial situation, that cannot stress me out because my riches are in eternity. My emotional situation, my relationships that I have, I have a relationship with God. Those are all things that you come back to and you say, this is what I'm going to depend upon. 
I guarantee you that if you looked at the things that stressed you out this week, that bothered you this week, that maybe brought you down, that discouraged you, that, that whatever, that, were, that consumed your mind, if you, if you looked at those things, guess what? If you were dead to yourself and dead to the things of this world, they could not bother you. When we are more alive to this world, then guess what? The world is more alive to us. And that will be the thing that consumes our hearts and minds. And here's the greatest way that I've seen to test that. Look at what brings you life. Look at what brings you life. Look at what brings you joy. I mean, have you ever heard someone say, maybe after they've had some sort of experience or they've had they've done something fun or done something enjoyable, they get off and they just, oh, I just felt so alive. How many of you ever heard someone say that? Vote. Let's vote. This is a voting class, okay? Let's vote. You've heard someone say, even if you saw it on a movie, you heard someone say, like, I just feel so alive. Like, things just feel, everything just feels so vibrant and so great, okay? Sometimes if they're feeling really dramatic, they're, oh, the colors of the world look so alive right now and so vibrant, okay? They're feeling alive, okay? What brings you that moment in your life right now? If you have to get on a roller coaster to feel alive, number one, I'm not riding with you. Number two, you need to evaluate your priorities. If that is what breathes life into you, then you've got to step back and say, okay, this is something that also could tear me down. If the only thing that breathes life into you is, man, I just so love getting together and just sitting around and talking and having fun and laughing and playing. If that is the only thing that breathes life into you, then you've got to step back and say, what happens if I don't have that anymore? What happens if all of a sudden my life is dependent on something that is not of God? Our life should come from the things that come from God. Our joy should come from the things that come from God. Our breath should come from our walk with God. And the only way that we do that is if we die to the things of this world and die to ourselves. Secondly, not only is dying daily uh, uh, makes us unmovable, but then secondly, communicating purely makes us unmovable. Look at verse number 33. It's interesting the way that this, this passage moves. He basically says, if I went to Ephesus for no good reason and fought, he said, if I did that, then I guess, like, let's just go ahead and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But he says that's not the point. He says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. I want you to listen for just a second, and then we'll, be, and we'll fly through the last point. What you say out loud eventually will dictate what you do. What you say out loud, whether it be to yourself in your mind, or whether it be what you talk about with your friends, or what type of communication you share around others, what you say will eventually become what you do and what you believe. You say something long enough, even if it's a lie, you'll start to believe it. Exhibit A, the world around us, okay? We now are starting to say things that, that only God knows where they came from. Because we've said it long enough to where now there's a couple people that are starting to scratch their heads and say, oh, maybe that does make sense. You say two plus two equals five long enough, someone will start to believe it. And that's exactly what we're seeing in today's society. But on the other hand, 
And I want you to listen to this. As you choose to speak purely and right and truthfully, you'll also start to believe that. Meaning this, that in moments where you doubt God, you say God is good and I trust you long enough, eventually your mind and your body and your spirit will start to agree and believe it. The sad truth is that our words is one of the very few ways that we have to gauge who we are and what we really believe. And there's some of you right now that if you went back and you took a record of the words that you said this week, it would be a waste of nothing. You will have talked about everything except God. We will have said everything that you needed to say about sports or about athletics or about business or whatever. You put yourself in your shoes, okay? I can nerd out about grass seed with the best of them. But guess what? There's times where I step back and I start, if I'm in a conversation and I've talked for 20 minutes about grass seed and I think, wow, what have, where, what have you gotten yourself in? Like, wh what have you accomplished? Because my yard's still not green at the end of the day and it still makes me mad, okay? So what we use our words for is what the rest of this world knows that we believe. So what'd you talk about this week at work? What'd you talk about this week maybe in your classes? What'd you talk about with your friends, with your roommates? Was it just a waste of nothing? The Bible teaches us in Matthew that our words will be judged. We will give an account for what we said on this earth. And sadly, there's going to be a lot of Christians that stand before God that it's going to be a very easy decision for him because we talked about a whole lot of nothing rather than talking about him, rather than talking about what was true. And so speaking or communicating purely makes you unmovable. But then lastly is this, is that not only communicating purely and dying daily, but living rightly. I want you to look at verse number 34. Verse number 34 is probably one of the most, um, I, it's, it's an encouraging verse, but it also is one that should be a wake-up call. And sometimes I think that we need to, and we need a verse like 34, verse 34, to step back and say, what am I doing with my Christian life? And I want you to look at it. If you got your Bibles, pull them out. Look at verse number 34, because this is such an impacting verse. It's actually convicting, okay? He says this, Awake to righteousness and sin not. That's a powerful phrase just in and of itself, isn't it? He says, you need to be awake. You need to be alive. You need to be paying attention to what is right and sinning not. Now, let me just say, this is not attached to your salvation, okay? He's not saying you've got to be perfect, you've got to be sinless to receive salvation. He says you need to awake yourself, you need to be alert to what is right, and it needs to become a part of you so that sin becomes repulsive. Sin not. He's giving you a command. Don't let yourself fall into sin. Well, why would I want to do that? Because sin's so great. This is legalistic. This is God making me do something that I don't want to do. I can't believe that he would give me a command like that. Why would I want that? Well, here's a good why. He says, for some have not the knowledge of God. Well, whose fault is that? That's got to be God's fault. That's got to be God's problem. If there's people out there that don't know him, then that's, that's, on, that's on God, not on me. Verse 34. I speak this to your shame. 
He says, awake to righteousness and sin not. Well, why in the world would a good God make me do something that I don't agree with? Why would good parents not let me play in the middle of the street? Did you ever ask that question? You're asking the same thing about a good God who knows what's best for you. And let me just put it to you very simply and maybe put it to you on the, on the bottom shelf for us as a generation. You want to know why great Christians were developed in previous generations and why a lot of people are scared about Christianity in the generation sitting in this room? Is because we've taken the commands of God and we've viewed them through the context or the lens of how we feel and how they make us feel and not through the lens of what verse 34 just talked about. If hell is as hot and as bad as what we say that it is and what we believe that it is, then why would we not sacrifice maybe a little bit of how we feel and say, I'm going to sin not, I'm going to wake to righteousness, I'm going to do what's right, not because it's always necessarily something that's easy for me, but because there are people who do not know God and they need to see my life being obedient to the God who is good to me. Let's just be very honest that past generations of Christians the reason they were good at Christianity is because, and they, everyone has their flaws, so don't, don't sit there and say, oh, Joel elevated it. I didn't, okay? Everyone makes mistakes. But here's what I will tell you, is that there are prayer warriors who are sitting in that auditorium, many of them that you guys visited a couple of days ago. Prayer warriors who have seen more answers to prayer in their lifetime than many of us will ever see. Why? Because they set themselves aside and said, I'm going to pray. And you know what's funny about this? Is that if we were on the other side of the coin of those who didn't know God, what type of Christian would you want to see? You see, sometimes we like to view Christianity so much through the lens of how it makes us feel that we forget that it's not about us. It's about Christ and about others. And if you were on the side of the coin that didn't know God, would you want a Christian who was sitting there talking about, well, I don't know, this, this Christianity thing, I'm just kind of testing the waters. Is it, or would you want an all-in surrendered Christian? And that's hard to think about, but I think it's worth it because guess what? This thing that we call living right and pure and holy is worth it. Not always even for yourself, but for others, I'll close with this thought and we'll be done, okay? Um, you think about maybe sickness and you, you think a lot, uh, I, I've been thinking a lot and I've been hearing a lot of, um, I guess, stories or um, things going on in people's lives. And, and one of the things that I hear a lot is people who are waiting on transplants, okay? Um, in fact, Matt and uh, Peter Hayes' brother, who are here on our staff and a part of our church, their brother was um, on the list for a kidney transplant and a heart transplant. He's already had one heart transplant, was waiting, and uh, actually passed away this past week um, just because of all the infection that he had. And they didn't even think that they were going to be able to do some of the transplants that he was needing. But when I hear that, one of the things that I think about is think about the sacrifice that it has to has to occur there for someone else to experience life. And you know what's always interesting to me is that the people who receive a transplant 
are the ones who have so much joy. But the people who are part of giving the transplant also experience a lot of joy. The people's family who maybe they know that their loved one's death brought life to someone else, there's joy in that. In fact, little Carter Collette that's here a part of our church just this past, uh, I think, uh, February 14th, celebrated two or three years of having a heart transplant. That's amazing to me that someone's sacrifice over here brought life to someone else over here. And we can reconcile it in the medical field. Let's think about it in the spiritual realm that it could very well be that your death to self and your sacrifice to obey God, maybe when it's not convenient, could be what brings life and the knowledge of God to someone else. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray and we'll be done. Dear Heavenly Thanks for listening. If this lesson is helpful to you, feel free to share it with someone else or let us know by emailing us at crosspoint at franklinroad.org. You can also check us out at frbc underscore crosspoint on Instagram and Twitter. We look forward to connecting with you again soon.